Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Happy official New Year. This is the first time I've seen you since the New Year. Can you believe it's been an entire year since we've seen each other? (laughs) It had to come out. So, uh, this year, many of you uh, who do the whole Bible in a year thing, uh, even more of you who attempt to do a Bible in a year thing and then stall out halfway through, like I did uh, for hundreds of years, it feels like, until I finally got it. It's amazing. It's kind of one of those things. It's like once you do it and like break the seal, all of a sudden it's kind of like it just becomes this is just what I do. Um, but getting to that point where you do it for the first time can be ridiculously difficult. Um, I, I think by far I have started more Bible in a year plans than I have finished. Um, but thankfully for a while now, uh, it's become such a routine that I just I do them now and it's part of my day. So if you're struggling, if you have struggled to do a Bible in a year plan, do not quit. Do not give up. Uh, my highest encouragement that I can give you if you do find that make it part of your routine. Find a time. I always do my Bible reading very first thing in the morning. My wife, my kids know this. As soon as I get up in the morning, they know dad does his Bible first. And so, you know, that's what I do very first thing. But if you get it into that routine where it's just what you do, it becomes ridiculously easy to do just because it it just is what it is. Um, And so you can get it done. But for those of you who started a Typical Bible in a year, you started in the book of Genesis, and very common on that first day in your Bible in a year, you read this infamous line in Genesis 3. These are the words that the serpent uses to convince Eve that she should take a bite of that forbidden fruit and put us in the position that we are now in. Thanks a lot, Eve. Right? I know we all love to think that we would have made a different decision. Not so fast, sweetheart. If there's anything the Bible teaches, it's that we all are the enemy, right? We're the bad guys in this story. Jesus is the only hero. So, but this is what the enemy says to Eve. Did God really say? And he plants seeds of doubt. So, I would like to cordially thank the enemy for inspiring this sermon series that we're about to launch into. We're going to do what God does, because this is what God loves to do, y'all. He loves to take the enemy's words and the enemy's plans, and he loves to turn them right back on his head. He loves to use the words that the enemy means to kill and to destroy, and to use those words to bring life and salvation to everyone who hears them. So we, during this sermon series, are going to look at these words. Did God really say... And we're going to look at some of the greatest promises that God gives us in Scripture. And we're going to ask this question, did God really say, and then insert the promise. 
And the question then becomes, if God said it, do we believe it? Right? If God said it, if God really gave us this book full of promises, then why aren't we living like these are the promises of God? Right? Why aren't we living under those promises? And I think the reality is because we don't really believe, right? We believe that we're waiting for that other shoe to drop. This is too good to be true, God. Surely you didn't mean, and that's exactly what God pulls on Eve, isn't it? Or I'm sorry, what Satan pulls on Eve, isn't it? Surely this is true good to believe, Eve. Surely God didn't mean when he said, right? But if God said it, y'all, we got to believe it. We've got to take God at his word, and we've got to walk in the promises that he's given us. So that is where we're going to start this year. And we're actually going to start by picking up something that we left back in 2023. Some of you will remember this if you were here at this time. But right after Easter in 2023, we did this sermon series called Beyond the Tomb. And we talked specifically about what it means as Christians to walk in this resurrection life that Jesus gives us after being raised from the dead and giving us the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, we hit the first six chapters of the book of Romans. And I said, when we were done, we're going to stop this, but if the Holy Spirit prompts, we may pick it back up again. And here we are in 2024, and the Spirit has prompted, and we are going to pick it back up again. Isn't that exciting? And to do so, we are going to be in the often twisted, misrepresented, and misunderstood Romans 7, one of my favorites. So if you want to open your Bibles this morning to Romans 7, we're actually going to start in the back half of Romans 7 because it's the most confusing and utterly delicious. So we're going to start at verse 14 and read through verse 25. This is what Paul says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that the law is good. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Amen. Anyone confused? You can shoot your hand up in the air. And if you're not confused, you are a liar. 
and you are in the right spot. <laughs> it's just confusing, right? Guys, like, it, it's difficult for me to read this out loud because it's like I, the part of me that wants to do good is doing good, but then the bad doesn't want. It's, it's confusing. And so it's no surprise that throughout the years as people have read this and as scholars have interpreted it, it's taken on a thousand different meanings. But the question is, and we've got to question this, do these meanings that this passage takes on, do they line up with the entirety of Scripture? Do they line up with what Jesus says? And here's the problem. This is, this is the rub, y'all. Because it's not that. The Bible is perfect, right? The, theologically speaking, if we're talking doctrine and all that stuff, the Bible is perfect. We as Christians, we here at the Gospel House, we believe the Gospel is the inerrant Word of God. It is infallible. That means there are no mistakes in the Bible. When it was originally written, no mistakes. So it's not that Paul goofed up, right? Paul didn't make a mistake when writing Romans 7, and all of a sudden, like, we've got this little blip that doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. What's wrong is our interpretation of it is messed up. And so if our interpretation of what Paul's saying doesn't match the rest of Scripture, we don't change Scripture, but we change our interpretation. Okay, then Paul must not have meant that. Paul must have meant something different. So what did Paul mean? And so it really brings up this interesting question in the Christian faith. And you walk up to a thousand different Christians and you'll probably get a thousand different answers on what people believe. But the question is, do Christians sin? Should Christians sin? Or better yet, did God really say to stop sinning? See how it fits right in there? It's just so perfect. Did God really say, is Jesus' expectation of his followers that we would walk lives without sinning? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you do get the gamut on this. There are some Christians who believe you are a new creation and once you become a new creation, that sin life is gone and you never sin again. They believe that. There are other Christians who say, eh, you know, I screw up. Jesus forgives me. So I'm really not in any hurry to change my screw ups. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, you know, I'm going to try. So what's the right answer? What's Paul saying here in Romans 7? And we're going to look at three things. First, we are going to look at the impossible command. And we're going to look really ask the question, does God give us impossible commands? Does Jesus tell us to do things that are impossible for us to do? Second, we're going to look at how God is indeed the God of the impossible. And then finally, in order to put it all together, we have got to kill the messenger. So hopefully this all makes sense by the end of the sermon and all these things connect. First up, is this an impossible command from God? Did God really say to stop sinning? And if so, is that a real expectation that Jesus expects from every single one of his disciples? The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, if you believe, as 
some scholars is pretty split on this, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Most scholars think that that's the same John. There are some who think that they're different. Whatever. I don't know that it really matters a whole lot. But the Apostle John, for our sake, we're going to say he wrote all of them. The Apostle John seems to think so. That God did indeed say his followers are to stop sinning. So much so that there are three different times John records in his writings this command from Jesus to stop sinning. Twice in his gospel and then once in the letter of 1 John. First, if we look in John chapter 5, we see Jesus have this interaction with a lame man. He's sitting outside of this healing pool that supposedly angels would come down and stir the pool and and people with illnesses would get into the pool and they'd be healed of, of whatever it was. But this man was lame. He couldn't walk. And so there was no one who would dip him into this pool when the waters were stirred. So he just laid there waiting for his miracle. And then one day Jesus comes. It happens to be on a Sabbath. And Jesus tells the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he does. Pretty cool, right? And a whole lot of sermons get preached on the miracle. And a whole lot of sermons get preached on the fact that Jesus just shoves this in the Pharisees' faces. Take that. You tell me not to heal on the Sabbath, watch what I'm going to do. But not very much light is shed on this. Afterwards, Jesus finds this lame man in the temple and says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus does not say, Do your best not to sin. Jesus does not say, make sure you obey the first five commandments because those are the big ones. Do not sin, period, black and white. And that's not all because a few chapters later, we get the very popular message. Lots of non-Christians like to use this passage when they feel like they are being judged fairly or unfairly by Christians. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery, if you are familiar with this story from John 8. The Pharisees find this woman, then they catch her in the act of adultery. Awkward. And they bring her to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What say you? And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? And so you have all the people say, yeah, see, you don't know me. You can't judge me. Jesus didn't even judge this woman. What? Right? But look what Jesus says next. Look at Jesus' command to this woman. Straightening up, Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, do not sin any longer. Kind of cuts down that self-righteousness, doesn't it? (laughs) Go. 
Do not sin any longer. Now, this begs the question, right? When, where else in the Gospels, where else in Jesus' life do you see him give commands to people that he doesn't expect them to follow through on? Because that's, I got, look, y'all, I did my research while I was you know, looking up, looked at all the conflicting views on Romans 7, right? All the conflicting views on this topic of whether Christians should sin or not. And there's a billion of them out there, y'all. You do a quick Google search, you're going to find plenty of reading material. I assure you. But guys, that's, that's one of the, the theories out there. Well, Jesus is just being sarcastic. <laughs> what? Well, that's a horrible excuse. Jesus is being sarcastic? Go and leave your life of sin, Jesus chuckles to himself. Right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But then you also get this, well, he's giving hyperbole so that, he's giving this great command so that, you know, we get as far, are you kidding me? Now look, I I know this. I'm a literalist, right? If Jesus says it, I believe it. So when Jesus gives a command, I believe that we as Christ followers should take it as black and white as possible. I believe when Jesus uses figurative language and imagery and all the things, he does that, but he makes it pretty clear that that's what that is. Y'all, I don't see anything in either of these stories that shows any imagery, any, any metaphorical whatever. Jesus says, do not sin any longer. Not do your best. Not, you know, there's a lot of people who think, well, Jesus is talking about lifestyle sins. He's telling these people, get out of the lifestyle of sinning. Where? That's not what Jesus says. Clearly. Now, now you've got to remember, the Apostle John is following Jesus around while these incidents are taking place. That's why he's recording these things. And clearly, these two incidents had a major impact on him. Because when it comes John's time, long after Jesus, Jesus is is gone. Jesus is resurrected and ascended, he's gone. John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pens this letter to the churches. And he says this in 1 John 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I've talked about this passage before. This is one of, the very, my, fir- one of my first memories discipling with my father-in-law. But he, he, he brought this up and he brought this passage to my attention and he tricked me. He's very tricky. And he said, that passage from 1 John 2 says, when anyone sins, we have an advocate, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, that is what it says. He says, no, that's not what it says. Doggone it, tricked me again. But what does it say, y'all? Because that little word is all the difference in the world, right? Not when we sin, if we sin. That's a huge difference, isn't it? 
right? If I tell Kurt Munson, say, when I come over to your house for the Super Bowl, because I'm not having him over at my house, I'm going to his house. I'm going to make him clean up afterwards. If I say, when I come over to your house for the Super Bowl, would you like me to bring buffalo chicken dip? He says, I don't know what he's saying. It depends on whether he likes buffalo chicken dip, right? But if I say, if I come over, what's, what are the two assumptions there? If I say, when I come over, I'm coming, right? I don't care what you do. Even if you're not going to be there, I'm going to be in your house watching the Super Bowl. If I say, if... That means what? There's a chance, right? But it might not happen. If we sin means that sin is in no way expected in the life of the Christian. If it happens, we have an advocate in in Jesus Christ who has already paid for our sins, right? But it is not assumed that we sin. Y'all, we are getting further and further along in our Christian culture, in this this American, Western Christian culture, where sin in the life of the believer is considered to be inevitable. You cannot not sin. And so when we hit these things like Romans 7, and we read what Paul says... We assume, well, that, that's what Paul's talking about, right? He's talking about we can't help but sin. So thank goodness we have Jesus who covers our sins. And we view this command from Jesus, this command from John, where he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And we view that as an impossible command. <laughs> okay, okay, John, like <laughs> we get it, but we also know we do screw up. We're, we're going to mess up. It's, it's, it's human. We're humans, right? But guys, we miss one of the biggest themes of Christianity, Judaism, I mean, all the way back. God, from the very beginning in Genesis, God is the God of the impossible. God does impossible things all the time. Look, You go to charismatic and and Pentecostal churches where people are praying for people to be healed and legs are growing back and blindness. We believe in the God of the impossible. But as soon as you talk about cutting sin entirely out of your life, oh, that's too hard. No, we don't believe in that kind of impossible. That's a different spirit-filled life, Pastor. We want the crazy stuff. You missed it. You have missed it entirely. Open your Bible, and over and over again you will see that God loves impossible challenges. Name one hero in this book, one hero, Old or New Testament, who doesn't walk through an absolutely impossible circumstance. Right? Stories wouldn't be worth telling if they didn't. Well, Joe led a plain life and was never challenged and never had any hardships, but he was blessed beyond measure. Who wants to read that story? Absolutely nobody, right? But doggone, Daniel gets thrown in a lion's den. You want to get thrown in a lion's den, y'all? You throw Jeremy in a lion's den and it's just Jeremy against the lions. Guess who wins that fight? It's not going to be me. 
but you throw Daniel in a lion's den with God, and all of a sudden, who wins? Right? You tell Noah to build an ark with God, and guess who wins? You tell Abraham, you tell, I mean, go through the book, right? All of these people, David and his mighty men, Gideon, fighting these wars where they are severely outnumbered. But God loves impossible challenges because then it's God who does the work, right? We want to talk about did God really say? You guys have heard this one. God will never give you more than you can handle, right? The problem is God really didn't say that. Now, Satan doesn't want to challenge that, right? He doesn't want us to ask the question, did God really say? God will never give us more than, he can, than we can handle. But guys, God is constantly giving his followers more than we can handle. Because when we finally reach the end of ourselves, we've got to trust him to fill in those gaps. And the quicker we get there, the better off we are. This theme came up with Jesus and his disciples. This one particularly comes in Matthew 19, but it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this one is when they get to, there's the story of the rich young ruler. And this young man questions God, or questions Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he passes the test, right? Right away, he passes the test. He says, I've obeyed all the commands, I'm doing it right, like I know all this stuff, Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, you're right on, man. You are right on. Do one more thing. Do one more thing if you really want to store up treasure in heaven. Sell everything that you possess. And the man breaks. And he's sad and he walks away. He says, I can't do that. Because he had a ton of possessions. Jesus then tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Y'all, we live in the grand state of Ohio. You guys know what our state motto is? With God, all things are possible. <laughs> I laugh because you look at politicians in the state of Ohio. You'd never know, would you? Put it all over the state house and everywhere else. It's that old, you know, once you put it on a wall, you don't have to worry about whether you believe it or not. Truth, stick it on your currency and it doesn't matter. But as disciples of Jesus, y'all, with God, everything is possible. God loves laying impossible burdens on his disciples because it forces us to trust him to do them. Guys, we live in this do-it-yourself Christian culture, right? We got DIY shows for everything else, so why not DIY following Jesus? But the problem with that is you cannot follow Jesus in your strength. You can't. We've got a boatload of people out there trying to do it right now. And if they're being honest with themselves, they are failing miserably. 
because when it comes to commands, guys, you, you, we, we know, know this, right? Commands are not optional. When you are given a command, right? When my mother says to me, Jeremy, can you go clean your room? That's not a command, that's an ask, right? She doesn't say that to me anymore, just so you guys know, I, I'm an adult. But when she says, Jeremy, go clean your room, that's a command. It's not optional anymore, okay? Jesus didn't say, do, do you feel like not sinning, Jeremy? Do you feel like living a life where you're not sinning following me? He didn't say that. Do not sin is a command, which means it's not optional. And if there is any part of me, y'all, that thinks, wow, Jesus, that's impossible. My human nature is way too strong for that. Then I need to give up control, right? Then I am not letting the right person do that job. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7, y'all. You know, we go back and forth. There's the people who are like, oh, well, he switches verb tenses and he, he you know, accidentally puts it in the present tense when he was talking about his past. Stop. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul is talking about is there is a war going on in every single one of us. And we have got to decide which way we're going to go. Look at what he says. This is in the very beginning of Romans 7. I'm going to cut it apart here. Now, listen, I hate doing this, I really, but I'm, I'm doing it to save time. I, I don't like taking things out of context. It is very easy, people do it all the time, to take isolated Bible passages, cut things out, and, and you know, make the Bible say what you want it to say versus what it actually says. So, listen, I triple dog dare you when you get home today. Read Romans 7 on your own and make sure Pastor Jeremy is not pulling the wool over your eyes. I don't know why I would because this is a really dumb thing to pull the wool over your eyes on. Like, yay, stop sinning. It's a command, not optional. Like, nobody wants that, right? This is hard. This is a hard thing. But, but go home and read it for yourself and ask the Holy Spirit, what does this mean? And I believe with all my heart, he will confirm in your heart what I am telling you now, because this is what he told me. But this is what Paul says. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now Paul goes on and rambles about some things that are very confusing, so I cut those out and now jump to the next part. You can read them, though they do not impact the meaning. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Do you see what's going on here? When Paul talks about dying to the law and living in the Spirit. He's talking about trading controlling forces, right? 
the law controlled us when we were still living in the flesh. The law still does control us while we're still living in the flesh. Because in the flesh, it's impossible to follow God. And so you need the checklist to say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And so you follow the law. But what humans very quickly found out is they can't even do that right. Right? And you've all been there, right? Some of you are still there. Because you are still trying to obey the law in your own strength. This is the gospel. Stop trying to obey the law in your own strength. And die to the flesh. And become the spirits. Completely the spirits. That's why when Paul gets to the end of Romans 7, I'm just taking a clip of this. For I know that good does not dwell in me. That is, this is important, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Y'all, some of you have heard those Christians, you know, when they make a mistake or they do something wrong. Oh, the devil made me do it. Right? And we kid. This is not theological ground for that argument, just so you know. We use it that way, though, don't we? Y'all, can I be, I'll be really honest with you. I have used Romans 7. I remember when, when my father-in-law first you know, talked to me about this, about you know, Christians, if we sin, we should not be sinning. I, I fell back on Romans 7, what Paul says, right? I want it to be confusing. Well, see, Paul, Paul sinned. Paul was still in sin. That's not what Paul's talking about, though. He is not saying that sin just drastically grabs him and makes him do. He's like a puppet and sin's controlling him. So anytime you do something naughty... You can just go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, it was the sin that made me do it. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is your flesh still has way too much control. Y'all, if I keep, see how kind I am? I'm, I'm putting it all on me. It's not you. You guys are perfect. You obey Jesus perfectly. It is not you. It is all on me. When I screw up, the reason I screw up is because there is still far too much Jeremy left. There is far too much flesh. So when Paul gives us this confusing Romans 7, and it's just, well, what is going on? Ah, da, 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 da. It's this war. The flesh versus the spirit. And as long as you allow the flesh to hang around, you will continue to struggle with sin, and you will not be able to obey the commandment from Jesus to stop sinning. So you have to kill the messenger. This is going to sound awfully familiar to some of you. There are two messengers there's God's messenger, 
and there's man's messenger. God's messenger is the spirit. Man's messenger is the flesh. And you have got to kill the one that you don't want to obey. It is not a decision, y'all. You have, it is a decision. That was stupid. It's not optional. You've got to choose one. Do you kill God's messenger? Or do you kill man's messenger? Do you kill the spirit or do you kill the flesh? Some of you heard there's, there's that old you know, story that, that people tell. It's, I think it's an ancient Cherokee legend or something. You know, It's an old medicine man. Probably wasn't even a medicine man. It was probably just some guy named Joe that works at a gas station. But it sounds better if you say medicine man. People think it's smarter. But his grandson, he was talking to his grandson, and he said, inside you there live two wolves. And they are warring every day over your eternal soul. And the grandson gets really scared. He says, well, Grandpa, which one's going to win? He says, the one you feed the most, right? There's the good wolf, and there's the evil wolf, and the one you feed the most. And that's really cute, y'all. But unfortunately, Jesus goes way further than that. Because if we use the wolves, then all I've got to do is feed the good wolf more than I feed the bad wolf. And that's how a lot of Christians are trying to do this whole following Jesus thing. I would venture to say that 99% of Christians, at least in the Western world, try to follow Jesus like that. If I just do more good deeds than I do bad deeds, they'll outweigh the other ones and, and that good wolf will win. That's not Christianity, y'all. That's Cherokee. Cherokee legend. Not Jesus. Right? Jesus says not to starve the bad side, but to actively kill it. To put it down. Guys, our culture hates this message. That's why Western Christianity has swung so far the other way to adopt something different. But it's not the real gospel. When Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? Y'all, there is this false gospel that exists out there that says you can have your cake and eat it too. You can follow Jesus and still keep aspects of yourself. It's your self-care routines, yourself, you know, all the things but that's not what Jesus says. That is not the gospel. It's not about feeding one side more than the other. It is about actively putting down the flesh so that the Spirit has complete control. Can I tell you all my life? And I, I would venture to say it's true in your life as well. When I follow the Spirit, 
when I am step by step with the Holy Spirit and I am walking in Him, I don't sin. When I sin, it is because I have decided that I want my time. I deserve this. I've been walking through a lot of tough things lately, Jesus, and I actually deserve a little me time. I deserve to step out and to do this. I deserve to say this. I deserve to, whatever it is, right? It's not the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't whisper in my ear and say, oh, Jeremy, you've had it so rough lately. Why don't you just go and just, just indulge a little? I know that the law says you're not supposed to do it, but we'll, Jesus died. We'll just, we'll make. That's not the Spirit, y'all. If you hear that voice in your head, check it, because that's not the Spirit. You want to talk about the impossible command. Stop trying to carry it in your strength. This is something, y'all, when you go through and you read the book of Acts and you read these letters from Paul and the other apostles and Peter and John and James and all of these things, this is something they did not struggle with because they knew what Jesus' command was. So we get this really confusing passage from Paul Right? About, oh, well, see, Paul's giving us license to sin. He's telling us it's okay when we make mistakes. He's saying, you know, the flesh battles, and that's okay for believers. Let's look at the entirety of what Paul says. Because Paul also says this in 1 Corinthians 15. I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. He continues in verse 34, sober up morally and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It's not very encouraging, is it, Paul? He continues in Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. Black and white, right? Crucify the flesh. And then this is my favorite, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Guys, I love this verse. But can I tell you something? I love this verse, but I do not live this verse. Anyone else? You know how you can love a verse? but not live it? That has got to change. I really didn't want to preach this sermon. (laughs) Even this morning as I was driving here, there's that pull, you know that pull when you feel like, I I can't go back and do the things I used to do. I can't preach this sermon to you and then go back tomorrow and go back to Jeremy time and binge watching television shows on YouTube and you know all the all the things. I can't. 
I cannot do it because God will judge me for that. To sit up here and to tell you all to do something and then go to do something different. But y'all, I'm sorry. You can't sit here and listen to this and go back because there is a decision that has to be made. This wasn't the encouraging sermon series that you thought it was going to be, was it? (laughs) We're going to talk about the promises of God. Boom! A decision has to be made. Y'all, this, and this drives me nuts. I promise you, it's going to get better. You Bible scholars out there, guess what comes after Romans 7? Romans 8. Guys, Romans 8 is great. Romans 8 has some of the greatest promises in Scripture. I mean, incredible promises. But y'all, this is what drives me nuts about promises, and specifically people who chase promises. We want promises that only have worldly blessing. Or we take the promises of God and we only apply them to worldly blessing. Oh great, I can claim this promise and it'll make me comfortable in this life. Oh great, I can claim this promise and I can be healed in this life. Oh great, I can claim financial freedom in this life. It's not about this life. And if you run to the promises of God and only see how they pertain to this life, you've missed it entirely. Because if we're looking beyond this life, if we're looking at eternity, this is the greatest promise in God's word. The fact that I can live right now without sin in my life. That I can cut it out now and I can be like Jesus now. I don't have to wait till heaven. Y'all, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, We talked about this, was it last week? I don't remember when we talked about it, maybe last week, but but about being more like Jesus. As we see him more clearly, we become more like him. But guys, if the Holy Spirit, God himself, is living inside of us, and we are only doing what he says, and we are only doing what he does, then doesn't it stand to reason we will do and say what Jesus says and does? Right? You can have that now. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes back and wipes every tear from your eye and then we'll be per. You can have it now. The problem is, I like myself. I like my sin. Come on. Y'all, if, if sin wasn't fun, nobody would do it, Right? It wouldn't be a temptation, right? Sin is dragging yourself over rusty nails. (laughs) Easy, Jesus, I'm not doing that. But that's not what it is. It's fun, it's entertaining, it gives immediate gratification. But Jesus isn't remotely concerned with your immediate gratification as much as he's concerned with your eternity. And guys, I want to live for eternity. I want the Holy Spirit to take those desires because, y'all, I have moments, right? We all have moments where it's like, all right, Jesus, let's do this thing. I'm going to do this. Come on. And, and, And I'm ready. I'll run through a wall for Jesus. But then there's others. God, I know I said I was going to stop, but... 
We've got to crucify the flesh. Guys, every ounce of Jeremy Allen Metzger needs to get up on that cross and die to myself so that the Spirit can live in me. Don't buy this lie from the modern church that it's you and the Spirit holding hands and skipping together through life. That's not how it works. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You want to explain it away as hyperbole and metaphor and all the fancy English words that you don't actually know because you didn't pay attention in high school English? Go for it. I am going to take God's word literally. It is no longer I who live. So we're going to take a minute here. This is how we're going to close. I'm going to leave this verse up here. And y'all, I, I highly encourage you. This is, like I said, you cannot, I cannot stand up here and preach this sermon and not change. This next step, I'm giving you an out. I'm going to warn you though, God's not going to give you an out for long. Do not claim this. We're going we're gonna to come back, the worship team's going to play through a little bit, and you're going to pray about this. Do not make a promise to God you will not keep. Do you understand me? Do not make a promise to God you will not keep. There are scripture after scripture after scripture that talk about giving God lip service. That means saying something to God but having no intention on fulfilling it. Don't do that to God. He is worth more than that. But the worship team's going to play through this, and I want you to pray. And then I'm going to come back up, and I am going to declare this in front of all of you. And if you feel that pull from the Holy Spirit to stand and to proclaim it as well, we're going to declare it together, and we're going to say that we are crucified. And that from this moment on, it is Jesus who lives in us. Not Jesus and Jeremy tag-teaming the world. Not, not you know, 90% Jesus and 10% Jeremy. Jesus Christ has it all. And it is Him who lives in me. So let's take a minute and pray, and then I'm going to come back.
right? So if you feel so led, I would encourage you, everybody can keep your eyes closed, just to lift your hands and to just declare this with me. If you got a peek to see what the words are up on the screen, you can do that. But we're just going to read this straightforward, and this is our declaration. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, this is our declaration. Each individual here who is going to say these words, this is our declaration, God, that we are not going back. That we are crucifying ourselves, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would seal this in us. God, when we say that we want to walk a spirit-filled life, this is what we mean. That every moment of every day, it is not us who live, but it is you who lives in us. We are giving you that control. So we declare together, declare with me, church, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, can I encourage you, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I do something, it's, it's, I hijacked an Old Testament principle. It's called building altars. Build an altar today. So what I do on my phone, I pull out my calendar app and I make a recurring date on my calendar. And it says something that God spoke to me. So put on your calendar so that every year when this day comes, January 7th, and you can look back for generations, generations, you can tell your kids and your grandkids and their grandkids, January 7th of 2024, Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And you can tell them that, but put it in your phone. Put it on that date. For some of you who have paper calendars, stick it up on a wall somewhere. Print off Galatians 2.20 and remind yourself, your kids, your husband, your grandkids, everybody, that this day you gave everything over to God so that he can live in you. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.